0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And once again, it was a tour de force. Catherine Keating has quite the storied history uh, in the financial services world. She is not only the CEO of the BNY Mellon's Wealth Management Group. uh, She is a regular on all of the most powerful women in finance lists, Uh, Previously, she was CEO. um, Previously, she was chief executive officer of Common Fund and head of investment management and CEO of the U.S. US private bank uh, at JP Morgan. She has really a fascinating uh, background. They are one of the larger asset managers. And so, what BNY Mellon does when it comes to Um, generational wealth transfer and philanthropic planning and all these other areas related to the core of of wealth management, they are very much a a thought leader in the space, and and their actions have uh, ripple effects throughout the industry. I found this to be just an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, We definitely went deep into the weeds discussing things like certain types of retain interest guarantor trusts, uh, but generally, everything was very accessible and quite fascinating. If you're remotely interested in the asset management business or financial planning, well strap yourself in because this is going to be absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my conversation with Catherine Keating. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Catherine Keating. She is the CEO of BNY Mellon's Wealth Management Group, which runs about $265 billion in assets. Uh, BNY Mellon manages $2 trillion and has over $38 trillion in assets custodied. The firm was founded in 1784 by Alexander Hamilton. Keating previously was CEO at Common Fund and head of investment management At the U.S. private bank for J.P. Morgan, Catherine Keating, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thank you, Barry. Great to be here.
0: So you have a a fascinating background, and I want to start out delving into it. You were the first woman to be CEO at BNY Mellon Wealth Management, and you were one of the only women running investment management or the private bank at, at J.P. Morgan. Tell us about your journey.
1: Well, thank you for asking. You know, it's never about being the first. It's always about not being the last, right, in anything that we do. So let me start with that. Let me start with that. You know, here at um and at Mellon, interestingly enough, you mentioned Alexander Hamilton. You know, we've worked with strong women throughout our history. His widow, Eliza, was actually our first client. People don't know that she was a powerhouse in her own right, founded the first orphanage here in New York City. Uh, so we've worked with uh, strong women throughout our history. You know, as, as far as my... Uh, career, I guess like most people, I've gravitated to um, what interests me, right? We work hard in this industry. We want to make a difference. I've had a tremendous passion for trying to help clients, whether it's individuals or institutions, have better financial outcomes. And that's really our purpose. Right? At this company, we log in every day and we see on our computers, our, our purpose is to power individuals and institutions to succeed in the financial world. And so um, that's a large part of what has mot- motivated me. I also think that I just had experiences in my life that have demonstrated how important sound financial advice is, again, whether you're an institution or an individual. Um, when I was a young youngster, eight years old, um, my dad died very suddenly. And I watched my mom. I was the oldest of three kids. I watched her have to go back to work and then go back to school. She she was a school teacher and she decided she wanted to go back to school and become a librarian. Um, that was a career that she loved so much. She just retired a couple of years ago at 79. And so I've kind of watched um, how important good financial advice is. Obviously, she had to do things like buy her own First car. She took us all to the Volvo dealer. Had done her research. Volvo station wagons were the safest cars back in the 1970s. She took us all to the car dealer, and I remember walking in and having the dealer look at her and say, "Um, "Where's Mr. Kessler?" And of course, there wasn't a Mr. Kessler. So again, I've just seen you know how important Um, sound financial planning, investment planning, and decisions are in people's lives. I've also seen it in institutions. You know, I was lucky enough to go to the college that paid for everything. I served on the board for years, including through the financial crisis, and I know how important sound financial management institutions too. It enables them to make it uh, through cycles and continue to um, accomplish their mission. So um, a lot of it is just sort of the basics, what motivates you in the morning and how can you contribute to people's lives through your career.
0: So let's talk about institutions for a moment. You spent a, a good part of your career as CEO of Common Fund, which was a nonprofit asset manager serving endowments, foundations, and other financial institutions. How has that experience colored how you view the world of institutions?
1: So a couple of things are important to know about institutional investors versus individuals. The first one is that every institutional investor knows what its goal is. So if you think about a college endowment, the goal of the college endowment is to earn enough on its portfolio so that it can make distributions to support the mission, you know, typically four, four and a half, maybe 5% a year, and still exceed inflation right? So call that, a you know, if inflation is 2% and you want to distribute 45 or 5 you want to have returns of over 7%. They know what their goal is. The second thing about institutions that might be different than individuals is that they have governance and process, right? Boards and committees. When you think about individuals, neither of those things is necessarily the case. Nobody tells an individual what their goal has to be. They have to figure that out for themselves, and we spend a lot of time with clients about that. And You don't necessarily have the governance of a board and an investment committee standing in between you and making those decisions. So I think the two things about institutions that are so different is very focused on goals, very well-defined, and have governance and process in place to help support it.
0: So let's do a compare and contrast. When you're working with an institution, Mm -hmm. you know who's the head of investing there and you know who's managing a particular committee. What's that like? When you are working with a family where there might be very different group dynamics, there's going to be often a husband and a wife. Sometimes there's an active second generation or even third generation. How different is working with individuals versus institutions?
1: So it's, it's very different, and in fact, one, having worked in asset management with institutions and also in wealth management with individuals, one of the things that I try to do is to bridge that gap and take the best practices that institutions have and try to adapt them to families. And so let me give you two real-life examples, right, because um, 2008, a great example, um, and I'll give you another one, 2011. So what happened in 2008, we all know, uh, the financial crisis. And I was on the board of my college at that time. And just by luck of the calendar, we happened to be having a board meeting and an investment committee meeting on Columbus Day in October, which if you take your mind back to 2008, you might remember that was the day that all the CEOs from the banks went down to Washington to take the TARP money. So there we were having our regular board meeting and our investment committee meeting. And we had had We had done an enormous amount of work on asset allocation and the strategy for our portfolio. And we had done stress testing and all the things that you do as an institution. And so here we were in the depths of the financial crisis with bank CEOs taking TARP money. And we had to decide as a board and an investment committee, what were we going to do? Were we going to do what our policy portfolio told us we ought to do, which is rebalance and continue to buy stocks as the market was going down, uh, because that's what our policy had been tested for. And, and sure enough, we had to you know, lock arms and um, do something that was very hard, which was to buy and rebalance when the market was down. And you tend to see institutions do exactly that because of all of the time that has been spent on the policy portfolio and because they know time in market is one of their biggest advantages. It's more important than timing the market. On the other right. hand, when you look at individuals, they don't necessarily – have that governance and policy in place. And that's one of the things that we try to do with our clients. We have all of our clients adopt an investment policy statement in wealth management just as if they were institutions. And then we try to help them stick with it when it's hardest. And, you know, we can watch the industry fund flows and we can see whether clients actually do it. And in fact, interestingly enough, what you saw this year as the market was going down, and you watch the flows as we do, right? You saw money flowing into cash. We saw record amounts of cash in money market funds. We saw uh, money flowing into bond funds. Uh, We really didn't see a lot of money flowing into equity funds uh, when the market uh, was down in March. And so we know how hard it is to stay with your portfolio through the cycle. We told our clients uh, to do that. And, um, you know, if they did, they participated as the market has has come back to reach all-time highs.
0: So let me follow up with a question about exactly what you just described. When your investment committee and institution, which has a perpetual time horizon, is looking at a period like March '09 or, more recently, this, this past downdraft in 2020, they're precluded from doing something silly because they have an investment policy statement which prevents them from market timing or there's no upside to a committee to say sure what the hell let's jump in and out and see if we can pick up a couple extra basis points there's no financial incentive there's no glory it violates their own rules so they sort of are forced to behave well how do you translate that better behavior to an individual when you're working with them And they're nervous in a period like February or March 2020.
1: Yeah, so it's a great question, Barry. And again, what we really try to do here is we really try to port from the institutional asset management industry over into wealth management the same institutional processes and tools that have helped institutions for so long. So as I said, every one of our wealth management clients, we spend a lot of time with them to actually develop an investment policy statement just as an institution would have. And how do we do that? We do that by by first and foremost having to figure out what their goal is. Right? Every family is different. There's an adage that when you've seen one wealthy family, you've seen one wealthy family, and that's true. Every family is different. Every family has different you know, near-term and long-term goals. So the first thing we try to do is really be clear on what that goal is. And most of the time, we find that there's two aspects to it. Aspect number one has to do with lifestyle. They want a certain, um, you know, amount of income to support, you know, a lifestyle, particularly as they move into retirement. And then the second tends to be about legacy. What are the things that you want to preserve in your family? And they could be financial or they could be non-financial to preserve from one generation to the next, because our, our clients have wealth that outlives them. And so we focused very, very hard on what is that goal. And then we use a lot of modeling tools to show all the variables that will impact that goal. Some of them are obvious, right? The market and asset allocation, right? So we'll we'll trigger back and forth between different asset allocations to show the impact of them over time. Some of them are uniquely in your control, spending rates. Every institutional investor has a policy on spending. Nobody requires An individual to have a policy or even a philosophy on spending, and yet it has an enormous amount of impact on the wealth that you accumulate over time. Increasingly, we take into account borrowing, right? Our clients don't have to borrow, but just like major companies, it might make sense from a capital allocation perspective. Another thing that we have to take into account is after tax returns. Institutions don't pay taxes. Our clients pay taxes every year and every generation, so you have to keep an eye. Um, on after-tax returns. And so we've built models that help us to integrate all of these things and allow us to kind of show clients prospectively the impact of choices on asset allocation, on spending, on borrowing, on taxes, to try to help them chart not only the goal, but what are the things that I have to do to get there.
0: Catherine, let's talk a little bit about the clients of of bny who who is the typical wealth management customer tell us about them
1: sure barry our typical client is a wealthy family it might also be entities that you think of as being associated with wealthy families foundations endowments family offices family businesses even retirement plans potentially related to families and family entities so think about the whole ecosystem surrounding wealthy families, uh, the people and the entities. And that's really our client base.
0: So you guys have been around for quite a long time. 1784 is a, is a fantastic run. Most of your current clients, are they uh, legacies of, of uh, BNY being around as long as it has been? Are they referrals, generational transfers? Where does the typical client come from within the BNY Mellon um, family?
1: So great question, Barry. About Roughly half of our clients are referred to us from other clients or advisors to um, clients, so think of that as half. And then the other half comes from all sorts of sources, right? Just, you know, the dynamism of the market, wealth is being created around us all the time. Um, We're obviously pursuing uh, those opportunities. And we do have a combination of clients that have been with us many years. Um, We have a couple of families that have been with us six or seven generations now, which is just truly uh, remarkable and something that we appreciate and try to earn every day. And then we have clients that, you know, have just taken their companies public and are brand new clients this year. So it's, it's really all the sources that you would expect in a long tenured institution like ours.
0: And and how have client expectations changed over the years in, in, in terms of what they're looking for from you guys in terms of communication, what they're expecting in terms of performance? Has that shifted Uh, over the past decade or two?
1: So that's a, yes. The answer to that, Barry, is is yes. You know, when I think about when I started my career in this industry back in the 1990s, you know, the typical client might have been a CEO, a CFO, you know, a senior corporate executive. And when that client retired, chances are he or she, and very often it was a he, retired with a corporate pension plan, Right, an annuity for the rest of um, his life and his spouse's life, and also anything else that they'd accumulated in their savings. So when I think of the 90s, I think of wealth management as kind of an and. You had your it, you had your pension plan, and you had any savings that you'd accumulated on your own. Well, fast forward to this decade that we're in, and what we see is that you know, there are very few company provided pension plans anymore in corporate America. Corporate America has shifted from company provided pension plans to employee funded savings plans. So today, everybody is responsible for their own financial futures. And that's a fundamental shift. And that's another reason, Barry, that we try to port over into wealth management, all of the institutional asset management disciplines that you would have seen a chief financial officer or a chief investment officer use when they were actually providing for people's long-term retirement. That's much less common today. And so our mantra for clients is you have to be your own CFO, you have to be your own CIO, and we're here to help.
0: Huh? Quite interesting. The past uh, couple of decades have seen a big flow of capital into passive products and, and indexes, what do you see from your perspective? How is that changing what's going on in the ultra-high net worth uh investment family?
1: So before we look at active or passive, we, we look at the ecosystem that we're investing in, right? What's going on in the global economy? Because that's really the ecosystem that we invest in. And in fact, at the beginning of this year, I sent a letter to all of our clients, not knowing, of course, in the beginning of January uh, what 2020 was going to hold for us, but recognizing that we were starting a new decade. And as we started this new decade, we looked at global economy, we looked at capital markets, and we we had sort of a forecast for our clients. You know, what do we think market returns are going to be in the next decade? And I actually quoted Bill Gates in that letter, who says, "We always overestimate." what's going to happen in the next two years and underestimate what's going to happen in the next 10. And one of the things that we said to our clients about the next 10 years is that we thought that market returns were going to be lower, incrementally lower, not significantly lower, but incrementally lower going forward. And there was one major reason for that. And that is that all of the largest economies in the world are aging at the same time. China, Europe, Japan, the United States. And we know what happens when economies age. Inflation tends to go down. Interest rates tend to go down. Yield curves tend to flatten. GDP growth tends to go down. And eventually market returns tend to go down. And we pointed out to our clients that actually we've been seeing that through this whole new 21st century we're in. Think about it, right? Inflation has been coming down. Interest rates have been coming down. GDP growth has been coming down. And market returns have come down incrementally. So what we said to our clients is, that's the ecosystem that we think we're going to be in over this next decade. We still do. We've had some really unexpected and very important events this year, obviously, with the global pandemic and the influence of Congress with fiscal stimulus and the Federal Reserve with monetary stimulus. And we actually think that that monetary stimulus and the low interest rates for longer are very, very important to the outlook going forward.
0: Hmm. Interesting. We're going to talk more about interest rates in a little bit. But I I want to ask you um, something that I found fascinating uh, in my research, which was your description of five active wealth practices. Invest, spend, manage, borrow, protect. Tell us a little bit about what that group of five is and how does it manifest itself in a client's portfolio and their relationship with uh, their advisor at BNY Mellon?
1: Thanks for asking, Barry. Yeah, we have a lot of passion around this because, again, as I said um – We believe that part of our job being, you know, one of the largest institutional firms out there is to help our clients benefit from the best institutional practices around those five things. We took, you know, we have the great fortune of having a lot of experience working with wealthy families at this firm all the way back to the Hamilton family, as I said. And so, you know, our brain trust of people have put their heads together and said, what have we learned over the years? What are the five things? And we didn't know if it was going to be five. It could have been three. It could have been four. It turns out it's five. That we see allow families to sustain their success over time. First and foremost, investing. Your financial assets, your portfolio, having the right asset allocation, and most importantly, sticking to it when it's hard. Number two, um, spending. As I said, every institutional investor has a spending rate, a spending policy, understanding the impact of spending on long-term returns is very, very important. Number three, borrowing. Our clients don't typically have to borrow, but they can. And one of the things that we joke about is that you can date yourself um, by saying what the interest rate was on the first mortgage you took out on a house. If it was in the double digits, chances are it was in the late 80s, early 90s. If it was in the mid-single digits, it was in the 90s. If it, you know, dropped even lower, it was uh, sometime in this uh, new um, century we're in. And if it's below 3%, you took it out this year. So, you know, our clients don't have to borrow, but they make capital allocation decisions just like any major company does. And so thinking about their balance sheets and thinking about when it might make sense to borrow, particularly when rates are low for estate planning purposes, for liquidity purposes, for purchases, that's become a more important discipline. And that's uh, the third one. So investing, spending, borrowing, managing for after-tax returns, because our clients do pay taxes. And part of that is related to your question about active and passive, right? Passive vehicles, um, lower cost, but also very tax efficient. And what we say to our clients is, again, with our investment outlook, you've got to eke out excess returns wherever you can. There are certain asset classes where that may be less likely. You know, the U.S. large-cap market is very, very efficient. Um, We would say um, you can actually add tax alpha in the U.S. large-cap market, uh, perhaps more effectively and consistently than you can add investment alpha. But then there are other classes, asset classes, where markets are much less efficient, and we do encourage them to go um, for excess returns. And then the last discipline, protect what you have. And that's everything from good cyber practices to estate planning and trusts and things that protect assets to protecting the non-financial assets. What are the qualities and disciplines in your family that you want to see survive to the next generation? So it's it's invest, spend, borrow, manage, protect, as you said.
0: Hmm. Quite, quite intriguing. Let's talk a little bit about... What a year we've been living through. 2020 saw a virus-induced economic shutdown, a 34% decline in the S&P 500, tons of volatility. How has this mayhem this year affected clients? Were you guys forced to respond with new policies and procedures, or how did you deal with 2020?
1: Great question, Barry. I mean, how has this pandemic not impacted our business this year in a way? I think it's the question because if you go back to the beginning of March, you know, 98% of the people in my division worked in our offices and we had to transition over a three week period to 90% of them working at home. So, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, kudos to the company for all of the work that it has done over the years in resiliency and in technology, because it actually enabled us. We didn't expect this to happen, but it actually enabled us to very, very rapidly shift 90 percent of our employees in wealth management from working you know, full time in the offices to working at home. So, um, you know, fortunately, it turns out in hindsight, we were more prepared than we thought. But apart from that, it meant we had to change our days. And so at BMY Mellon, what that meant in March and April and May, when we were really in the thick of this, the executive committee, the senior leadership group of the company, met early every single morning. And, in fact, some days we met more than once to kind of take a look across the markets, the landscape, what did we see was happening. Then in wealth management, we start our mornings now every single morning together on a markets call, kind of guiding our people to what we're seeing in the markets, what changes are we making in portfolios, what advice are we uh, sharing with clients. During the spring, when markets were changing so rapidly, every single Monday at 4 o'clock after the markets closed, we held a call for all of our clients, sharing with them what we were observing and what we were doing uh, to help them. Uh, On Tuesdays at 4 o'clock, we closed our days together With another meeting, internally, just gathering people together and talking about some of the new things that um, we have to learn and absorb this year, whether it's around low interest rates that we have, whether it's around new planning techniques under the CARES Act or other things. Um, And on Fridays, for much of this year, we've actually closed our days together in Wealth Management at 4 o'clock with a very short call, 15 minutes, just reflecting on what the week has meant to all of us personally and professionally. So we've really changed the way we spend our time because we're going through this crisis in such a different way than any other crisis in our history, which is we're going through it together, but we're sitting separately. And so we're really trying to recreate occasions to come together.
0: Hmm. So, so now we've gotten pretty close to FDA approvals on three separate vaccines that all look extremely promising, Uh, What do you think this is going to do, not just to reopening generally, but how has this experience changed what the future of the workplace is going to be? Are we going to go back to 2019 or has 2020 left a lasting impression that will change how financial services firms are going to operate in the future?
1: That's a great question, Barry, and I think the answer is that this has fundamentally changed our working model for the future. And so let me talk about the business model, first of all, how we work with clients. You know, I would have said that for many, many years we had a two, two-legged business model. Part of it was physical, meeting with the client in person, and part of it was digital, the client interacting with us uh, digitally using our tools. I would say that this year we have permanently added a third leg to that business model, which is virtual. So they'll be physical, they'll be digital, but they'll also be virtual because what we've found is it's a very efficient way to meet with people. It's an efficient way to get a family together that may not be living together. They might be living in different states. Um, It's a very, very efficient way to get large groups of people together, right, just for an hour, no commuting time. Um, we, we've actually done some virtual events for our clients, given, you know, virtual tours of the Metropolitan Museum of Art that people from all over the country are taking part in, even without traveling to New York. Same thing for, for the MoMA as our museums here in the city of Rio. So I think we have added virtual as the third leg of the business model permanently. And I think that's a really good thing.
0: Huh. Quite Quite interesting. So. It seemed 2020 was an election year and all clients wanted to ask about was what our thoughts were on the outcome of the election and what it might mean. What was your experience pre-election? How are you looking at possible changes and how um, curious and concerned was uh, your client base?
1: So I would say that 2020 is certainly an election year. I would say it's even bigger than that. 2020 is a year for the history books. When you think about what we've gone through, right, historic um, actions in the markets, historic actions by central banks, historic global pandemic, historic election, it's just been a year for the history books, and we're all going to look back on this um, and remember what it was like to go through it together. I think specifically with respect to the election, Our clients have had questions really about two things um, leading into the election and and after. The first is, you know, elections are really about policies, right? What do we think the policies of the new administration, the new Congress uh, might adopt? And so our clients are business people. They were concerned about policies, you know, related to different industry segments and also about taxes. Because, of course, as I said before, our clients pay taxes every year and every generation. So those were really the two areas that we were Spending time on with clients. And with respect to taxes, our clients have, you know, an understanding that really tax rates in this country have been declining, you know, since the 1970s, right? When we look at federal tax rates, you know, income tax rates, capital gains tax rates, corporate tax rates, you know, they have been coming down. So our clients have an awareness that we are at, you know, sort of multi decade lows on tax rates, and they also have an awareness that we've got, you know, deficit spending and pressures on, on the budget. So they, they focus very, very keenly on tax rates. And I think, um, you know, we await we to see what the outcome of the Georgia elections will be, um, to see, you know, what's the more likely outcome on passing some of the policies and related to taxes and other things in the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, we will see. We will
0: see. So so that raises questions. We, we've already seen the certification and the transition um, phase begin. That was sort of up in the air for a while. Yeah. But as you referred, we don't know what's going to happen in the runoff election and whether or not there'll be a change in control in the Senate. But given that, what sort of things should investors be doing in 2020 to prepare for potential changes in 2021? Or, or or should they not? It, are there, even if the Senate flips, does it matter what's done now? Can it wait till 2021? How are you advising clients?
1: So what we would tell our clients is to take the steps that make sense for your long-term plan. If it makes sense, to diversify many of our clients, their wealth is created in concentration, right? They found a company, they have a concentration and a single stock. That's how wealth is created in this country. We can think of the wealthiest people in the country and we know how Jeff Bezos and everybody else created their wealth. So we tell them if it makes sense for your long-term plan to be uh, making some changes to your investment portfolio, perhaps to diversifying, perhaps uh, to taking some uh, capital gains, that you should do that. If it makes sense for the long-term, you should stick with that long-term plan, you know, in the meantime, markets tend to like divided government. Markets have done very well with divided government, and we've had divided government actually um, for much of the last 20 years. So, um, and and that's what the market is tending to expect right now is divided government. You've had you have lower, you will have um, lower, uh, democratic majorities in the House. Uh, the Senate will be very close. So the market is expecting a relatively balanced outcome and what we say to our clients is, you know, stick with that long term plan and if there are decisions that you make that you would make for the long term, you should make them. There are things that are highly tactical right now, right? Interest rates are the lowest that we've seen in our lifetimes. And that includes for estate planning, right? Intrafamily gifts, lit interest trusts, intrafamily loans, lowest interest rates ever. So there's a very tactical aspect of that. And the other thing that's tactical is that the estate tax exemption is scheduled, which is currently roughly, you know, $23 million approximately across a husband and a wife. That is tended to uh, reduce in the end of 2025. So, you know, using things that are going to go away uh, makes a lot of sense.
0: Let's talk a little bit about alternatives uh, they play a huge role in the institutional world, especially uh, in the endowment space. We're seeing more and more interest in that space, especially private equity, uh, these days. How is this going to play out? What sort of uh, interest are you seeing from your client group? And what do you think the future of alternatives are going to be in the investment management space?
1: Good question. You know, our clients are business people, and so as a, as a baseline, they're very comfortable with private businesses and private markets because that tends to be how many of them have become successful. So they understand that as, as business people. You know, when we think about portfolios and, again, trying to have individual investors achieve the kinds of long-term returns that institutions have, alternatives is, is very much a part of that. And capital market structure has changed a lot over the last 20 years. If we think about capital markets and what's happened, you know, you've seen a steady decline in the number of public companies in this country. We now have fewer than 5,000 public companies. At one time, that was as many as 8,000. And at the same time, you've seen a very large increase in the number of private companies that are backed by private equity and venture capital funds to the point where you now have more of those private companies that are backed by private equity funds and venture capital funds, then you have public companies. So you have a much bigger investment universe in um, the private equity space, and you, we also see that companies tend to be staying public longer, particularly the venture-backed companies. And so there's a very large alternative universe out there where a lot of value is being created, and we think it's very important for our clients to have exposure to that for the long term. Because what you've seen over time is that when you give up the daily liquidity of, of public markets, you tend to earn a liquidity premium in private markets, and that liquidity premium could be as much as 3%, 4 5% a year. And so if I go back to, you know, kind of our outlook for markets for the next decade and the fact that we think public market returns are probably going to be incrementally lower, eking out those excess returns that you can get, in private markets are going to be even more important for wealthy clients.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the traditional 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. You have called it a, quote, relic of the past. Tell us why.
1: So the 60-40 portfolio for many, many decades gave clients a combination of Good returns in equity markets, you know, call it high single-digit returns in equity markets, and good returns in fixed income markets, call it uh, mid-single-digit returns in the fixed income markets. You know, as we look ahead, for the reasons that we've, we've been discussing, we see modestly lower returns in public equity markets. And now, particularly this year, after the actions of the Federal Reserve and reducing interest rates, we see lower returns in fixed-income markets as well. And so the question is, what does that 60-40 portfolio become? And, it, and the answer is, it really depends upon you, your long-term objectives, your needs for liquidity. But at a minimum, it probably isn't a 60-40 for almost anybody anymore right it might become a 65 35 it might be a 70 30 it could even be an 80 20 depending on your age your outlook your needs your objectives and those are the that's the modeling that we're going through with every client right now because we would look at that 60 40 portfolio that might have you know, fairly reliably delivered call it a 7% you know annualized return over the last Couple of decades, and we would say, you know, our outlook right now is probably that that's more like five percent. If you leave left to its own devices, it's probably more like five percent. It could even be a little lower. How do we help to capture those additional returns? And it'll be some of the things that we've talked about, right? It'll be things like um, diversifying into private markets. It will also be about diversifying a bit away from the United States. The United States. Equity markets have led the world since the financial crisis. We actually think that we might see a bit of a rotation there going forward, so diversifying away uh, from the United States. In your bond portfolio, it probably means having a smaller allocation to bonds because the yield will be lower, but it also means finding some other things that you can sort of reliably sleep at night with. Maybe it's more like absolute return hedge funds, for example, um, so it's, it's a tweaking of that portfolio. It's not a huge rewrite. It's a tweak, and it's being tweaked every day slightly differently for every client.
0: Huh. What, what do you think in the fixed income space of things like high-quality corporates, muni bonds, and we are occasionally getting questions about preferreds? What are your thoughts there?
1: You know, for us, the fixed income portfolio is the, um, is the balance, right, to the, to the risk that you take in the rest of your portfolio. So we do tend to focus a lot on quality, right, higher quality. Um, we actually focus very much right now on duration because, um, you know, duration has actually extended, meaning that there's more duration risk in portfolios. So right. um, we, those are the two things that we're most focused on in fixed income right now.
0: I have to ask you a couple of questions about uh, philanthropy and your clients. I know you're on the investment committee of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the Helmsley Charitable Trust, and you were on uh, a, a couple of, uh, of your alma matas on the investment committees. Uh, how are clients thinking about philanthropy these days? What, what issues seem to be dominated?
1: points about philanthropy. One is that we are a very, very generous country and culture. And we've seen that this year. We've seen that across our client base. We've seen charitable giving going up in donor advised funds and outright gifts and trust gifts and planned giving. So we are a very, very um, generous country and culture. And that's very inspiring. The other thing that I think has been just amazing to watch, and to a certain extent, be, to be part of this year is to watch how philanthropic resources have gotten together and just attacked where the needs are, right? So, you mentioned Howard Hughes, you mentioned Helmsley, they both focus on healthcare and they have dived in um, to opportunities and challenges created in healthcare related to the virus. You know, I think about our company. We have been, you know, we're headquartered here in New York City, and we've, we've sort of dived into the needs that we've seen here in the city. We've provided iPads to a hospital system for patients to be able to communicate with family members when they couldn't visit. We've helped homeless shelters get Wi-Fi for students that might be living in shelters that need to do remote learning. So I think one of the things about this year has just been seeing um, philanthropists, Dive in to meet the needs that were created so unexpectedly.
0: You mentioned that some of the um, non traditional gifting techniques are quote unquote on sale, things like charitable lead trusts or grantor retained annuity trusts. Tell us about some of these uh, mechanisms that allow families to very advantageously make donations to their favorite uh, philanthropies.
1: Vary on the type of a gift. If you make an outright gift, you value it on the day of the gift, you know um, what that is and you've, you've made an absolute transfer of it. But sometimes gifts are split interest gifts. You might keep an interest and give away the remainder. You do that um, with a charitable lead trust or a charitable remainder trust. You do that with a grantor retained annuity trust. And the interesting thing about split interest gifts is that you have to value what you're keeping because that's not a gift. You don't make a gift to yourself. Um, and the gift really is the remainder, what you're not, what you haven't kept. And the, the reason that there's such a compelling opportunity right now is that the value of what you kept is discounted at very, very, very low interest rates. Um, and so that um, means that potentially there could be a large gift if markets exceed, you know, low interest rates. There could be a large gift um, at the end to the beneficiary, whether that's a charity or a family member. So it's a pretty technical estate planning. Environment, but lots of opportunities for clients.
0: One of the areas we did not get into was uh, environmental, social, and governance (ESG) investing. Tell us a little bit about that space. What What are your clients thinking there?
1: So, when it comes to environmental, social, and governance matters, we view those considerations as just basic considerations that you should employ. As an investor and as an active manager, so we look at those considerations when we make decisions as investors. I think that in a, in the big scheme of things, you know, envir- ESG, environmental, social, governance considerations. You know, interestingly enough, there was a time when people were concerned that if you took those into account, you might be limiting your investment universe and therefore you might potentially limit your returns because you're investing in a smaller universe of companies. In fact, what we've seen happen over the last uh, 10 years or so is investors have come to realize that these are factors that should be taken into account. And if you don't take them into, into account, you might actually increase your risk. So hmm. in our view, the whole the whole rubric of ESG has now become just a fundamental part of investing. Now, when it comes to any particular family, they might have particular passions or concerns related to E or F or G, and we can take those into account and tailor. But in general, as investors, we just look at those factors as things that any um, analytical investor should take into account.
0: So, so let's stay with the, um, the governance side of that. There was a 2019 Deloitte study, they found that women in leadership roles in the financial services industry was a rather paltry 22%. At your firm, 40% of the leadership group are women. That is quite a, a success story compared to the industry. How was BNY Mellon capable of uh, achieving such, such success in that space?
1: Well, look, in the wealth management industry, we understand how important diversity is. Our clients are diverse. We represent families. So we know how important it is to our business. But apart from that, you know, the data is really clear. Diverse leadership teams have lower cost of capital. Diverse investment teams have better investment returns. Diverse sales teams have better sales performance. The data is really clear that diversity... It's good for business and it's good for investment businesses. So there's simply no question about that. You asked about why is it that the industry maybe hasn't been as diverse as um, we are and that we want it to be? And I think there are really two reasons, Barry. The first one is visibility. You know, when I was growing up, I'm from Washington, D.C. And when I was growing up, I didn't really see finance or investing or financial services as a career back then. This was, you know, the 1970s, 1980s in Washington. And I saw lots of great careers public service and medicine and law my dad was a lawyer um you know real estate all sorts of things media but i didn't necessarily see financial services it wasn't until i was a professional that i realized um, that that was a career you know that i could pursue and so one thing that's happened since then is that markets have democratized right that shift from pension plans to 401ks and personal savings, markets have democratized. And so I think the industry is much more visible. And I try to do things to make it as visible as I can for women, part of what we're doing today, uh, because I just think it's really important. It's a wonderful industry and a wonderful career. So visibility is the first. But then the second thing is process. Right? We are an industry that is challenged by markets that change all day, every day. Right? We are an industry that tends to have to absorb information and move very quickly. And sometimes when it comes to diversity, moving too quickly is not the best thing to do. Sometimes you need to slow down, you need to have a good process, and you need to cast your net widely when you're thinking about recruiting and promoting. And that does take a little longer, but the, but the results tend to be much better if you can just slow down a little and have a great process that's very inclusive, hmm.
0: quite quite interesting. We're recording this on a day when BlackRock bought a um, direct indexing fund for about a billion dollars. What are your thoughts, given what you said about uh, tax advantaged alpha of direct indexing and its ability to um, generate? better after-tax returns versus traditional indexing?
1: Well, I think when it comes to wealth management, there's a role to play for broad market indexes, but there's also a role to play for customizing those indexes, right? So you might be customizing them for um, particular um Tax outcomes, right? You can tax harvest losses and customize for the kind of tax outcome you want. You might be customizing them for other reasons, right, to to, um, form an index that is a little bit different than the market but helps to accomplish a particular passion or goal of your client. So I think there are are roles for broad market indexes, but increasingly I think there are roles for customizing those indexes to after-tax returns or other goals that a client has, and we really see that as the future and a, and a way that we spend a lot of our time.
0: Let me, uh, let me throw a curveball at you. Uh, I know BNY Mellon's founder was Alexander Hamilton. How did the uh, play resonate within BNY Mellon? What, what, what was the response within the firm?
1: So obviously we're very proud of our history of Alexander Hamilton and Eliza, as I said, and Eliza. Um, his widow, who was actually our first client in uh, wealth management, we love the musical. We love the musical. We love the way it makes our history come to life. We actually enjoyed watching the streaming version um, over the summer, one of the fun things that we did um, as a group in wealth management. Uh, but, you know, when I think about, um, you know, the musical, you know, one of the things that keeps that is always top of mind, is happens to be my favorite song in the musical is The Room Where It Happens. And that's the one about the compromise between the northern states and the southern states to move the capital from New York City to Washington, D.C. I obviously live in New York right now. I'm from Washington, D.C. But I think that that whole process of compromise and give and take, it's something that we do every single day as we debate, um, you know, investment portfolios and decisions and things like that uh, with clients. And I think increasingly it's something that we're all looking to our government to do right, in Washington. So uh, we, love the, we love the show. We love the history. It uplifts us all the time. And uh, thank you for asking. Tell us what you're streaming
0: these days. You mentioned the Disney Plus um, version of Hamilton, which was spectacular. What else are you watching on either Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or whatever?
1: So I'm streaming a couple of things. One is The Crown. I think it's hard to be an American and not have an affinity for the special relationship we've always had uh, with the U.K., I actually even tuned in in the spring when Queen Elizabeth addressed the United Kingdom for only the fifth or sixth time in her whole life um, about the pandemic, and I found it uh, very inspirational and moving. The other thing that I'm streaming right now, you know, it, it remains very hard for independent films to get funded in Hollywood, and that can be particularly the case when they are films about women. Uh, You know, written by women, stories about women. And so a couple of years ago, I actually invested in a wonderful film. It's called A Time to Spy, and it is a true story. It is out on Hulu and Amazon right now. It is about three women spies in World War II, true story, um, who trained as spies under the Churchill Foreign Office and went into Nazi-occupied territory as part of the war. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story about real women heroes.
0: That's the film A Call to Spy, and you could find that on Amazon Prime. Tell us about your early mentors who helped to shape your career.
1: So one of my early mentors in my career, and it's just an example of the serendipity in this industry, was actually Jack Bogle, who was the founder of the Vanguard Group. And I've never worked at the Vanguard Group. And yet, um, in this industry, I had the chance to meet Jack and um, work with him and cover him as an industry um, industry group, industry peer. And, you know, I watched him really change the investment industry. I watched, you know, he had lost his dad at a young age, and he was very, very committed to the success of individual investors. And I remember Vanguard when it was still a small company and celebrating billions <laughs> versus trillions. And I watched, you know, his passion and his conviction really build a company that changed the industry, and it, I have, it has always stayed with me. I was I was fortunate to stay in touch with him for his whole life. Um, so Jack Bogle, unexpectedly, a big mentor of mine, even though I never worked for him, I just had the great good fortune of working with him. Mm. Um, and another one I mentioned earlier, my mom. My mom, who became, you know, a, unexpectedly a widow at 32 years old with three little kids that went, um, you know, back to work and back to school and back to work and learned how to manage her own little, you know, pot of life insurance proceeds and, um, you know, stayed with her career till she was 79 years old because she loved books and she loved the library. She was a librarian. And, you know, she's been an incredible, incredible mentor for me. So uh, Jack Bogle and my mom, two of my mentors.
0: Quite, quite fascinating. Tell us about your favorite books. What are you reading these days? <laughs>
1: So I love to read. I love to read. I actually majored in English in college, and this year I've read recently Eric Larson, The Splendid and the Vile, which, again, a great mm-hmm. story of Churchill and World War II and the Battle of Britain. Really, really good. And not a story, by the way, nonfiction. Um, I enjoyed Michelle Obama's *Becoming*. I haven't read Barack's book yet, but I will, I will get to that, too. And um, I enjoyed a fiction book that's called The Vanishing Half, which is about two sisters, that ended up living very different lives and very twin sisters, very different lives in very different communities, one in a white community, one in a black community. Enjoyed it very much.
0: Quite, quite interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in investment management?
1: the first thing I would do is I would congratulate them for picking a good industry and a good segment the wealth and investment management industries are dynamic and growing and they will be a good career for for the rest of your career so congratulations you picked a great area and then I would tell them two things the first one is that we're a knowledge industry And so whether you realize it or not, those early years in your career, you have the luxury of being very selfish, focusing on yourself and trying to learn as much as you can and get as much knowledge as you can. Because as your your career progresses, you tend to have more responsibilities, responsibilities for more projects at work, more people at work, maybe people at home. So these early years, whether you know it or not, are years that you can be really selfish and focus on yourself and try to learn as much as you can. And then the second thing that I would tell them is, we're a knowledge industry, but knowledge isn't enough. We're also an empathy industry because we really work with people. And we have to, the first thing you have to do if you want to be empathetic is that you have to listen. And sometimes in our industry, the tendency is to tell people everything we know. In fact, what we ought to do first and foremost is be really good listeners, because then we're going to learn about what's important to our clients. And I've just learned over time that you get great success when you combine what you know with what people care about and what you care about. People don't really care about what you know until they know that you care. And so that combination of learning, learning, learning early in your career, but also building empathy and listening skills, that's the perfect combination um, in this industry. And that's what I would encourage them to focus on.
0: And our final question What do you know about the world of investment management today that you wish you knew back in the 1990s when you were first getting started?
1: So what I know about the world of investment management today that I wish I knew back in the 1990s is that success is about a lot more than beating the market. Beating the market is one of those disciplines and absolutely you want to beat the market or at least meet the market over time. But real success, comes from knowing what your goal is, charting a course to get there, staying with it. And it's a lot more than the market. As we talked about, yes, investing is part of long-term success, but so is managing your balance sheet and deciding how much and whether to borrow. So is spending and deciding what's the appropriate spend rate to help you achieve your goals. So is managing taxes and managing for after-tax returns. And so is protecting what you have. So you know those five disciplines, invest, borrow, spend, manage, protect. When I started my career, I was laser-focused on investing, and I would tell everybody to broaden your horizons because success is about a lot more than beating the market.
0: Thank you, Catherine, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Catherine Keating. She is the CEO of BNY Mellon's Wealth Management Division. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out all of our previous interviews. We have about 400 of them, and you can find them at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for our daily reading list at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Marufal is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.